Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. What a wonderful afternoon it is for us to delve into some mighty books today. My name is Pamela Jr., and I'm a part of the Mississippi Book Festival. I am the director of the two Mississippi museums here in Jackson, Mississippi. What we're going to talk about today are three amazing books that that delve into the tenacity and fortitude and, and, and how people are lifted up and how they make a way out of no way. And to also learn about the great places throughout the South that delve into taking us on these trips, these, these wonderful travels of, of, the, of the civil rights movement that we'll get into. One thing that I found out that through these three books, they all, the stories all mesh together and we all come out on the other side and that side that we all want to come out is understanding the movement even more than we do now. Today we have with us Dr. Roy DeBerry, a native of Holly Springs, Mississippi. Roy is the executive director and one of the founders of the Hill Country Project. He was active as a high school student in the civil rights movement in the 60s, first as a Freedom School prep student, and then as a general organizer. Roy earned his bachelor's degree in sociology at Brandeis University in 1970. Continuing his education at Brandeis, he went on to earn a master's and later a doctorate in political science in 1978. He has also pursued additional studies at Jackson State, Duke, Carnegie Mellon, Michigan, and Harvard universities. The book, as I said, Voices from the Mississippi Hill Country, the Benton County Civil Rights Movement. Our next author is Deborah D. Douglas. It was a joy to read your bio and the many accomplishments that you've made. Storyteller, thinker, and educator, Deborah, I love how you say that you are a product of the great migration, northern born and southern rooted. She is a Chicago-based journalist and Studs Terkel Award winner who has served as a DePaul University Eugene S. Pulliam Distinguished Visiting Professor of Journalism. She was founding managing editor of MLK 50, Justice Through Journalism, and is currently a senior leader of the Op-Ed Project. Her book, U.S. Civil Rights Trail, A Traveler's Guide to the People's Places and Events that Made the Movement. Wonderful book. And then our last panelist is Dr. William R. Ferris, born in Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1942. Dr. Ferris is considered one of the foremost American authors and scholars of Southern art. He is the former chairman of the National Endowment of the Humanities and co-founder of the Center for Southern Folklore in Memphis, Tennessee. Ferris was also the founding director of the center, again, for the Center of Southern Culture at the University of Mississippi and is the co-editor of the Encyclopedia of Southern Culture. Ferris received his BA in English Literature from Davidson College in 64, an MA in English Literature from Northwestern University in 65, and a PhD in Folklore from the University of Pennsylvania in 1969. Today we talk about the book, I Am a Man, Photographs of the Civil Rights Movement, 1960 to 1970. Thank you all for being with us today. This is, is gonna be an amazing conversation. You know. 
this time last year, we would have, uh, the year before last, we would have all been gathered out at the Capitol for the Mississippi Book Festival. But we all know that what has happened is COVID-19. And one thing is that the Mississippi Book Festival wanted to make sure that we weren't super spreaders at all. So we wanted to make sure that we talked to everybody in the comforts of our own homes or offices, I am, to be able to discuss these amazing books. So let's get started. You know, one thing that I wanted to tell you is that we're going to give you about three minutes for you to give us a synopsis of your book. So since, Deborah, you're first on my screen, let's start with you and talk about your book. You're on mute right now, but to be able to give us a three-minute synopsis of what your book is about. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Pamela. I'm so happy to be here with this distinguished panel. Uh, you mentioned that I'm a product of the Great Migration. I am a Great Migration baby. I have recently migrated to Boston. So I'm talking to you from my new empty apartment in Boston because I am the new co-editor-in-chief of The Emancipator, where we are reimagining a 18th century abolitionist newspaper for a new day. So <laughs> it all has converged into this point. But I wrote this book because in 2018, a group of Southern travel offices got together and designated the official civil rights trail in the South. Now, there was a lot of civil rights, um, mid-century civil rights activity across the country, but this particular official trail actually denotes spots where activities happened as far east as Delaware and as far west as Kansas, and it goes deep into Louisiana and into Florida. And my challenge in writing the first book about traveling the Civil Rights Trail, the official Civil Rights Trail, was to, to capture a cohesive narrative arc of the mid-century civil rights movement. And so I didn't go every place to note it on the trail, but I selected a, 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 enough places so you could capture a sense of just the, the, the ebb and flow and the arc of that of the mid-century movement sort of ending in the civil rights acts. That doesn't mean that the activity stopped then because we live in America. We know the activity did not stop because the issues are still uh, unaddressed. But I've traveled the country. I've gone to Memphis, Jackson, the Delta, you know, Raleigh, Durham, uh, Charleston, of course, Washington, D.C., all roads lead to Washington, D.C. This is a, a history book. It's a book that is a travel experience. And if you want it to be, it can be a roadmap to engagement and activism. I tell you where to eat. I tell you where to shop. And unless otherwise I have uh, said otherwise, you are going to a Black-owned business because I, I wanted to respect the people whose story this is. I worked really hard to include as many voices as possible from people who are active in the civil rights movement. So we have the, the beauty of having Elizabeth Eckford's voice in here, Diane Nash. Bernard Lafayette is now my you know, honorary grandfather. I talked to the Reverend Calvin Woods and so many other people. I suggest you go eat the uh, Buffalo Ribs at Lasses Inn by Moe's Bows in Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and just spend a day or two or three in the National Museum of African American Culture and History in DC. Thank you. That's that's wonderful. I, I'm hungry already, Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about about food and, and traveling throughout the uh, United States, especially the Southern states. Doctor Deberry, since we have you, and and tell us about your book. Well, thank you, Pam, and. Uh... Yeah, I'm like you. I want to get that food. Also, when Deborah was talking, I was thinking about the uh, about the blue book. Uh, you know, places to go, places to eat, places yes. to stay. 
Um, and there was a lot going on with with uh, with, with the hurricane and all, but in uh, the loss of life, both in Mississippi and in Louisiana. So we were with those people and those families. But I also want to mention, you know, the death of Bob Moses that happened just recently. I met Bob Moses initially back in 1964. And one of the things I remember, even as a teenager, him always saying is that they don't do for local people what they can do for themselves. So, which is a sort of a um, segue into, you asked the question, why do we write the book? So why do we write voices? Um, the local people in Benton County, uh, it's their stories, really. They wrote the book, and all we did as editors would capture their stories. Um, I attended, along with one of my editors, uh, in 1993 in Hollis Springs, a SNCC reunion, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And at that reunion, we found that a lot of young people, both African-Americans and uh, European-Americans, uh, knew very little about the significant role that uh, their ancestors and even their living family members uh, had played in, in this transformative civil rights movement that that uh, Deborah just mentioned. And so we, chit- we set out to change that. Uh, 1993 and in 1994, there was another one. Uh, so we decided that one way to do this was to start to collect in, uh, interviews of these people. We knew that a lot of these people were getting on up in age. Uh, and so we interviewed more than 100 uh, and we started at 102, and we went uh, all the way down to 19. So we span uh, a large, long area. Uh, we broke the book into themes. So there were a number of themes, the beginnings, the people that were sort of started this movement, uh, generations, uh, siblings, uh, white reactions, observers, uh, service, particularly those that served in the war of Vietnam, looking back, looking ahead. So we focus on the young people. Um, and then I, I think the question, as I not, don't take too long, but what were the local people uh, who were passionate about that we featured in this book? Uh, trying to make a life, the right to vote, education, desegregation, because they knew that, uh, that segregation had been a disaster economically for themselves and their children. Land and owning land. They understood well what the sharecropping system was. In fact, they were just slavery by another name. So most of these people wanted to be landowners. And Mr. Reed, one of the leaders of that movement, was a landowner himself, and he always preached independence and land ownership. Religion in the church, these people were very religious. They were connected to their church. But it was more than religion. The church served as a refuge for them and also for their children. Also, it was a, a safe haven. Uh, 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 as a way to defend against against the night riders and the Klan at night, um, freedom and liberty. They talked a lot about freedom and a lot about liberty, and they wanted freedom from violence. Uh, violence was very real for these people. Uh, Miss Eldora Johnson is featured in that book, and one of the things she said, we asked her, "Why didn't you get involved in the movement?" She said, "You know, I was just scared." Um, and quoted from Miss Sarah Robinson, you see a picture in the background of Miss Sarah Robinson. She talks about the fact that, you know, you don't have to do anything to get killed. Uh, that just struck me. And then she said, you know, to be a citizen, uh, you ought to have a right to vote. Because I don't think I could be a citizen if I cannot vote. Uh, we talked to the Dorses, and that was a whole family of people. And they said, you know, our parents said to us, um, we don't want you to be sharecroppers. We want you to make it your life with a pencil. And then they said, you know, after now they look back and all of them are making their lives, you know, with a pencil. They all went on to college and got an education. So, Dr. Oh. DeBerry, so, so Dr. DeBerry, we'll get back to that. Okay, okay. Uh, and because I, I love how, in, how this book really 
takes us back to what I call porch stories. Yes, where indeed. Children yes, indeed. and grandparents yes. sat on the porch and the children listened. Right. They didn't talk. Yes. They just listened. And now we've lost those porch stories. So we'll get back to that. Okay. Okay. Dr. Ferris, uh, love you, sir. And this amazing book that you've written here. And, you know, I've never taken the, the cover off of this book, but I took the cover off last night and I was speechless by how the book looks, how it's in black and gold yes. letterings. I am a man. That really stuck out to me. Talk a little bit about this, this book and why you thought that it was necessary to put these photographs together. Well, thank you so much, Pamela. It's an honor to be here with these amazing writers and their books. <clears throat> this book started with a phone call in the summer of 2017 from a friend in France named Gilles Morat, who directs a photography center in Montpellier. And he said, I want to do an exhibit on the civil rights photographs of the 60s. And will you curate it and write the book? And I naively said, okay, I'll do it. And we were off and running. And a year later, we opened the exhibit. The idea was that it would open 50 years after the death of Reverend King. And it would feature not only the well-known photographers like Doris Derby and Danny Lyon, mm -hmm. but unknown photographers who took photographs for a local newspaper. And we tracked photographs all over the South and beyond and came up with about 3,000 that we boiled down to 300. And that exhibit was one of the top five events in France when it opened in 2018. And its opening in this country was at the uh, Mississippi Civil Rights Museum under your leadership, Pam. And it now is about to travel for six years around the country. What we did not know was that in addition to commemorating a 50-year legacy of civil rights, its sails would be filled with the winds of Black Lives Matter. And the relevance of the sacrifice and courage of the young and old civil rights marchers and workers like uh, Mr. DeBerry and Miss Douglas uh, on this program and in the photographs are more relevant today than ever. The right to vote is at risk. Uh, the violence against young and old black men, uh, the George Floyd uh, murder, all of the events in the past few years have made this book and the uh, exhibit more relevant than anyone could have imagined. So I am so honored to be a part of what we are talking about today. And I am deeply moved by the voices from the Mississippi Hill Country and the U.S. Civil Rights uh, Trail. Those are close to my heart. 
and I've got them on my bookshelf. I've got them here with me. And I see them as uh, really my soul food for civil rights. I used to live, live two doors down from Medgar Evers's home, uh, which is featured here. And I'm currently working with Rust College in Holly Springs and their new president, Ivy Taylor, on civil rights initiatives there. Uh, so the battle goes on. And I think we are privileged to have both of your great books as anchors for the struggle and the work that you're doing, Pam, uh, as a kind of way of moving us forward. Because as Governor William Winter said, we're halfway home and a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And these books give us a roadmap for how to get there. And for that, I'm thankful to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's that's wonderful. Let's kind of delve into some questions. You know, Dr. DeBerry, again, when you look at this book, what you think about are porch stories. Sitting on grandmama's porch after some good food and everybody's sitting around and grandmama and granddaddy are just telling the stories of old. And that's good because then somebody can tell those stories to their legacy and the stories continue to go on. That's what I got out of reading your book and going through it. For you, think about maybe, you know, right now one person, because I have another question later on, one person that, and I know everybody really struck a chord with you, but if you could think of one person, the tenacity of that person, the fortitude, the strength, of that one person out of out of out of out of this book that you'd like to to share with us. Well, uh, in addition to being porch stories, many of these people were participants as well. So they were participants, and then they told the stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very difficult, as you know, when you talk about thirty three significant people, to to pull out one. Uh, but there's one I'm going to venture because of time is Henry Reeves, and the reason why I'm going to select him because. The other people that we interviewed talked about him so much. He was significant in the sense he was born at the turn of the century. Uh, He was homeschooled by his uh, mother. uh, And he found a way uh, to get involved in in Benton County when it was not safe to do so in the 20s and 30s. He organized the first, uh, what would be considered the Civil Rights Club there in Benton County because at the time it was not, would not safe to say you were involved with the NWCP or any other kind of organization. So they called themselves the uh, Citizen Club, which was sort of a safe sounding name. He was a man that went around to 18 year olds, for an example. He knew them all. He knew when they turned 18, he would approach them and said, have you registered? And in some cases, even take them down to get them registered. Uh, he was a man that went around the state and got organized. Uh, met other organizers across the state and then brought back that knowledge to help organize in, in Benton County. So he would stand out primarily because of his leadership. Uh, he was not an educated man. One of the things that his nephew said in a book who lives in Chicago, uh, he said that if Mr. Reed had been an educated man, they would have killed him. And by that, he means he would have just been too powerful had he been educated. Even without the education, though, he was still a powerful phenomenon in that county and influence so many people. 
That's good. That's good. You know, again, when you read and really go through this book, it's just so, so amazing. These people who never, they, they, they said, we're never giving up. We want to make sure that our children get better than what we get. And that's what I appreciate so much about that, that generation of people. And not only that, but that generation of people helped us to continue on. Now, uh, Dr. Ferris, when you know, there was, and you named some of the photographers, Danny Lyons and Ernest Withers, Don Sturkey, and of course, Doris Derby. Why was it important? Because now you have cell phones and people can record and take photographs. But back then you had this big bulky camera and that they used. Why was it so important to document what was happening to the people, to the black people, people of color in the South? And, well, and it was very dangerous for the photographers. What I've discovered in this project is that photography and black people have been connected for several centuries. Yes. And Frederick Douglass in the 19th century recognized that photography was a way of dignifying the black man and woman in ways that in previous years, only kings and queens could afford. And since that time, Photography has been an instrument of liberation of civil rights and civil liberties from Douglas was the most photographed man in the 19th century, more than Abraham Lincoln, because he recognized that putting his face on a photograph was a way of elevating his role. And SNCC recognized that when they hired Danny Lyon to come to Mississippi and photograph the dramatic, courageous people who were demonstrating and being arrested. And those photographs were put on posters. They were in newspapers. And some have argued that the photograph that launched the civil rights movement was the photograph of Emmett Till, that his mother wanted taken with the coffin open to, as she said, show them what they've done to my boy. And every civil rights leader knew that photograph because it touched their heart. And even John Lewis talked about it. It was a photograph that did it. And the film the young woman took of George Floyd's murder, launched the whole Black Lives Matter. It went global. So we cannot underestimate the power of photography in capturing and bearing witness to what the world sees and does. It's no longer possible to hide the truth when the camera is there. Yes, indeed. Yes. You know, one photograph that really touched my heart, and I always think of whether well, a couple, but this one I'll, I'll, I'll just say, is the photograph of the children watching James Earl Green uh, funeral procession pass by. Yes. And, you know, I thought about those children because those children were in my age range. 
And so mm-hmm. I remember his brothers because we were all the same age and, and being in school. So the, the photographs are something else. And I, I, I would tell anybody to make sure you got the book so that you could go through it and, and, and see time passing by. Deborah, you know, I um, went through your book, U.S. Civil Rights Trail, and I wondered how was it for you going through places that you possibly never went through before and the little dirt roads and turning corners. And, I, you know, I talk, of course, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Mississippi, but how was it for you knowing that, that uh, Dr. Ferris brought up about Emmett Till and, and, and if you travel through Sumner and Glendora and I saw the photographs, so you were there. How was that for you? Yeah, it was funny. Early in the process, my my white editor asked me about, you know, any sort of advice I could put in a book about Black people and traveling on the road. And I thought, well, you know, the South is as dangerous as the rest of America is. And so I don't want to infantilize my audience or condescend to them in a way that they don't understand what it means just to move to and fro in the United States. And because I am a great migration baby with family from Madison County and just a small town just north of Memphis, um, you know, those places are not surprising to me. I started my career in Jackson, Mississippi. I covered Madison County for the Clarion Ledger. And so to me, it was like going home. But, you know, but I am a a woman, I'll say youngish, a youngish woman, (laughs) traveling alone. So you need to use common sense also. So, you know, when I went up to, uh, to the Delta, you know, I was at a friend's house in Jackson in North Jackson, and we sat at her kitchen table and I pulled out a paper map and, and, you know, drew a line on which road I was going to take. It, it was important for that day because it, there had been a storm and a couple actually, you know, was w- washed away in the water the day before. And um, on the other end, waiting for me when I got to the Delta was State Senator David Jordan. So I was in good hands. Yeah. <laughs> I find I find honorary uh, grandparents and mentors wherever I go. <laughs> and so we, yeah, we sat uh, we sat in the Board of Supervisors room, uh, and the the Greenwood, um, the town of Greenwood, and uh, we sat down and we just talked about his personal story and attending the trial of the murderers of Emmett Till. And then he kind of gave me the lay of the land, just like your people do. Mm-hmm. And then I got back in my car and I, I started my several days journey of just uh, spending time uh, learning about these places and contemplating these places and anticipating the kind of questions that people might um, you know, ask if they were to take a, a travel like mine. So what you did was, you know, in this book, you have a, a two-day a two trek, or you can make a week of it. You tell people where they can eat. You just take people through. And as, as uh, Dr. DeVere talked about the Green Book, yes. that it, it kind of reminds you of the Green Book. And that's an exhibition we'll be bringing here in 2022 Great. to the museum from the Smithsonian. But it, it really, you're, you're really in awe. I'm really in awe of this book because you even not only take us back into the 60s, but you bring us to the 21st century, to places that you can go and eat or sleep and what have you. Talk a little bit about why that was important for you to do. 
It was important to me because especially in the, when I was writing this book, you know, we had the racial reckoning. So for many of us, we live this reckoning every day, but you know, it was new information to some people, the, um, the, the, the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many other people and the disparate impacts from the coronavirus and the plight of essential workers. But it was important uh, for me to, um, just elevate this story, elevate a cultural experience and a historical experience in the same space. Because Black stories and Black histories are not typically curated for cultural travel. It is happening more. You know, we have the beautiful Civil Rights Museum in, in Mississippi and, and, so, and the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis and so many others around the country. But when you sort of like, you know, get ready to travel and you're doing your research online or you're calling to get brochures and collateral materials, those materials and maps don't necessarily send you to Black uh, communities and they don't send you to Black spaces. And so I didn't want us just to go and just you know, think about the past or think about, you know, people who are long gone. I want people to be activated and to, to spend time and live in these stories. And the best way you can do that is to just sit and talk and eat and shop, right? <laughs> and really get to know each other, to, to bear witness and to be in relationship with one another. And it was important for me to uh, implicate people in the investment of the Black community and the investment in our cultural histories. And so I took our community seriously. And I didn't suggest people drive by. I suggest that people live in relationship to these people and these stories. That's very good. That's good stuff. You know, Dr. DeBerry, one thing that I did, I, I was captured by was the baby boomer and uh, Generation Z you brought together at the end of your book. That was Travell and Miss Lily. And what I found was this, they, 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 their, their relationships as far as what they went through was similar, mm -hmm. even in the 21st century. Talk a little bit about that for us. Yeah, that's right. So that was an interesting juxtaposition, right? 19th century, 20th century, 21st century and how it's all connected. Um, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Miss Lily. Uh, I had known her dad, Mr. Nunley, Jake Nunley, who was mentioned in that book as one of the bravest black men that uh, they knew, uh, he and Mr. Thompson. Uh, uh, Miss Lily talked about the kind of microaggression that she had had to deal with, you know, while she was in school, uh, having to get off the sidewalk, having to, you know, um, deal with all kinds of stuff on the school bus. But she did point out an, an example where she uh, was fed up, you know, one day and she decided that this white girl was just not going to push her around. And uh, she confronted them. Both of them ended up in the office. Uh, but it turned out that because she stood up for herself, uh, the, the principal opted uh, not to suspend her or the other uh, girl. Uh, and I mentioned that story because Later on, when she talks about and she's reflecting on what had happened to her, she said, you know, she sort of felt sympathy for some of the white folk there in Bing County, because in many ways, she felt they were just as unfree, if not more so, than the black people were, mm -hmm. um, that they lived in this closed society and well. And you remember one of her last statement was that um, I, 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 I'm willing to forgive. I'm not going to forget 
but I felt sorry for them in, in some kind of way. I, it was an interesting thing. Uh, Travail obviously uh, is uh, younger even than Miss Lily. Uh, he is the grandson of Miss, uh, uh, the lady here that I have, Neva, Neva Tipler, who had been an activist there along with her husband and mother. And so he had not had any involvement directly with the movement, but he felt this need to carry on this tradition. If you recall, he, I don't know whether we mentioned in the book, but he's a tremendous poet and he's a rapper. Mm -hmm. And he, he says that's one of the ways that he figures that he carry on this powerful tradition that his parents and grandparents had headed down to him. And he felt it would be a disgrace for him not to do his part to continue that legacy. So I'm glad you mentioned those two. I would just like to point out, given what, uh, uh, and you can call me Roy, by the way, uh, <laughs> one of the things that William just I knew mentioned. you say that. <laughs> yeah, with respect to uh, photographs, uh, and I have a, a, a great photograph of Fred Douglas here in my house that I had picked up at MI College that Booker T. Washington uh, had, you know, was a friend of Mitchell Cottrell, who founded Mississippi Industrial College in Hot Springs. And I happened to have been going through the uh, old attic back in the 70s, I think, and I found this uh, old photograph of Douglas. It was not made of paper. It was on cotton. And so I took it to Memphis and had it uh, fixed, uh, repaired, and I have it here on my wall. The other piece I want to mention, you mentioned Emmett Till. There's a piece in, in Mr. Crawford. I mentioned him earlier. And sometimes that photography is etched in memory. He talks about going with his father to the courthouse and seeing the rope around the neck of a black man that had been lynched. And there was one of the racist killers there. And he asked uh, Mr. Crawford's father, doesn't that boy really have on a nice looking necktie? Mm -hmm. And the old man said to his son, said to the man, I don't know what he got on and let's go boy. So Again, that kind of uh, edge. Now, the boy pointed out that he, that many people would think that after he saw that sort of thing, he would be afraid and angry and have fear. He said with him, it was just the opposite, that he, he got courage from that, that, that for some reason, even though he had seen this awful lynching as a boy, it, it, it was etched in his memory even when we talked to him, but he didn't get fear from that. He got courage from that. And that's sort of the opposite of what the close society wanted to happen. And you, to your point earlier about all the people who struggled to bring about change, some of them were fearful. Some of them had courage, but they didn't stop because they knew that it was important to be engaged and bring about these changes. Yeah, that's, that's very true. That's very true. It's hard for me not to say doctor, but William. Yes. <laughs> William, <laughs> a question for you just I always go back to Dandelions and the photographers. Talk to talk to me about or to our audience about them. You know, when Danny Lyons said he arrived in Jackson, Mississippi, he, it, it looked like Johannesburg to him. Yes. And trying to get into the black community because white taxi drivers wouldn't take them. Talk about how they felt going into, you know, it's like going into war almost in some of these uh, situations. Yes. Well, we talked about South Africa in terms of apartheid and India with the caste system. And we can think of Afghanistan. I mean, it's like going into a war zone. And if you're white 
as Danny Lyons is, going into the black community was crossing a barrier that was forbidden by Jim Crow. Uh, and he was terrified, and the taxi drivers, the whites wouldn't take him, and finally got a black driver who took him to the address he had, and it was the wrong address. But the house next door was where he needed to go, so he got there. But what his comment suggests is that Mississippi, as Malcolm X said, in his opinion, started at the Gulf of Mexico and ended at the Canadian border. I mean, the apartheid in Mississippi, the racism that continues today uh, is global. We're not dealing with just Benton County Absolutely. or Sumner. We're talking about the world. Mm -hmm. And while we've got specific problems in Mississippi and in this country, if we find a solution to them, as each of our guests on this show have done with what they've written about and the people they've honored, then we're taking a step for the world. And I think of the Green Book, which was to show you safe haven places if you were Black during that era. But Deborah Douglas's book is much more profound in many ways because it's talking about economic investment. When you take a trip, you stay in Black-owned hotels and you cater your business to the Black community and you honor the sacrifice that those families have made to be where they are. When we look back at the history of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Wilmington, North Carolina, where Black middle-class successful businesses were burned down and the people in them were murdered. We're not playing around. We're talking about where success was destroyed and John Hope Franklin's roots in Oklahoma. Uh, he told me how his father, who was a lawyer, was in that uh, riot mm -hmm. and a race riot of whites attacking blacks. And they didn't know for several days if he was still alive. I mean, this is a global kind of issue. And to the degree that we can find a path forward in Mississippi, in the South, in our nation, then we're taking a step for all humanity because these issues are global. And Alex Haley used to tell me when he traveled around the world and people would say, well, you've got a real problem down where you're from in Henning, Tennessee. He said, yeah, it's a lot like the problem you've got here in Japan or China uh, because everyone identifies with it. And someone in China, when Alice Walker spoke about the color purple, told her afterwards that, you know, this book really is a Chinese book and you just borrowed our story. Well, that's because these stories are relevant yeah. to everyone. Mm -hmm. And that uh, wonderful uh, porch talk that Pam's talking about and the stories, the voices of people that you both have chronicled, all three of you, are voices that everyone in the world 
listens to and they understand. It doesn't have to be explained. And that civil rights trail will be a trail that will lead people from throughout the world, not just people in this country, but the Japanese, the German, the African guests are going to follow that trail to pay homage to people who've helped build a better future, just as the three of you have done and are doing. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. One question I want to ask all three of you. What do you hope that people would get out of reading your books, looking at the photographs, following the trails? What do you hope that people would get out of it? Roy, let's start with you. Well, I think William just hit a point. I have a good friend of mine who's in Vietnam, and he's read the book. And William is absolutely right. Uh, this is a local book with universal international implications. So he read that book, and he also can relate to this book. So while my emphasis is on the local, because it's, storytelling is powerful, as you know, Pam, being executive director of the two museums, there's nothing more powerful than a story. But a story that these local people tell are very compelling because they cut across something that's universal. They cut across things that we all can relate to. And as Bill pointed out, clearly it doesn't matter whether you're China, Vietnam, Africa, Europe, Australia, uh, these stories have universal uh, implications. Uh, now, does that mean that there aren't differences in different places? Yes. But there's something basic about all these characters that we interviewed there at Benton County, a small county just north of Memphis, that, uh, that people anywhere in the world can relate to, uh, uh, as was just stated. Uh, so I guess the whole idea that for us, as I said, we've recognized that people didn't know uh, these stories. Now, oftentimes they know about the iconic figures, Dr. King's of the world, um, Maynard Jackson of the world, um, Douglas, you name it. But oftentimes local people uh, are just as significant, in some cases more so. And we felt that these stories had not been told. And it was incumbent on us to get these stories in their purest form and let the people, if you notice uh, during the editing process, we tried to step away as editors and not infuse our thoughts and our views, but to let the people tell their own stories mm -hmm. because we felt, and I believe we did the right thing, we felt that would be much more powerful and much more compelling. All right, Deborah, what do you, what do you want people to get out of this book? Well, for anybody who is vexed and doesn't know what to do next about the condition that we're in, I provide resources at the back of my book. So I show you the thought leaders that you should read, uh, the hashtags you should follow, the audio books and podcasts. And if you want to bone up from the basic on the basics or if you want to pick up where you are and move to the next level, then I, I give you an opportunity to use the lessons of history to, to implicate that into your reality and the way you show up as a citizen in this this project that we call America. And I also want people to wake up like the way I woke up and realizing that 
very often you're walking, literally walking in somebody's footsteps as you're going to work or going to the grocery store or whatever. You're walking past history. You're walking past a building where history happened. And to me, that made like my life, my lived experience so much more exciting and majestic to know that these people are great, but they were also regular everyday people. Yes. And so we we are called to a higher purpose if we just open up our eyes and just absorb all of the richness and all the stories that surround us every day. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. William, what do you hope that people get out of this book? Well, what I hope is that I always, as a teacher, think our future lies in young people. And for me, all of you are young. Uh, I, <laughs> you know, I look back and it's the young who are courageous, who are not afraid to die, as Bernice Reagan said. You've got to be willing to die for what you believe in. And these young people were. And some of them sadly did die, like Goodman, Schwerner and Cheney. Uh, but when we look at history, we've got to realize that history does not die. History is alive and well. And racism is, as someone said, like cancer in remission. It's always lurking. And if you allow it to come back, it will. And we've got to know our history. We've got to know, as Deborah said, that we are walking places where heroes walk before us and the photographs, the oral stories and the, the trail of civil rights is part of that. These books ought to be in the classroom. And when we talk about American and Southern and Mississippi and Chicago history, when we talk about Studs Terkel, one of the great inspirations mm -hmm. for my work. Uh, these are people whose lives should never, ever be forgotten, like Dr. King and so many others who were unknown, the everyday people. And they made a difference. Uh, Emmett Till, unknown kid, going down to visit his family for a little fun and, in the summer, and savagely murdered. That is what we can never allow to be forgotten. And black history is the heartbeat of our nation. And to the degree that we give voice to black voices, then we are going to be honest about our past and our future. And that's what the three of you are doing is giving voice when I grew up in Mississippi, it was unimaginable that a civil rights museum of the caliber that Pam oversees would be there, you know, and the Mississippi Museum next to it. They are telling the truth through voices that were silenced in the years earlier. So we've come a long way. And I'm proud when I go to Mississippi and I see those museums and I know the sacrifice that went into creating them. And the future 
is lying in front of us with a lot more than we had when we grew up. But we've got to struggle to see that that history is alive and well and that we never, ever forget it. Very good. That's good stuff there. One, my last question for you is, you know, we've, we've, uh, you've done your research. We have photographs, studying the photos, listening to the stories of Benton County, putting yourself on the back roads. Tell me one, give me one word that describes where we are today in the civil rights movement. From everything that you've seen and, and been around, just one word, one word, Deborah, that <laughs> describes for you the civil rights movement of today. Urgency. Mm, very good. Dr. Ferris. Engaged. I am in awe. No matter who you're looking at and hearing, they have a sense of history that these books represent. And urgency, engaged, are two words that I would embrace as part of where we are at this moment. Roy, your word. Struggle. 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 The more things change, the more they remain the same. The struggle continues. Mm. Mm -hmm. And my word is understanding. My word Mm -hmm. is understanding because we have so many cultures and the history is right there for everybody to, to understand so that when we understand each other, what a great place we'll be in in this world that we that we call uh, where we stand, where we get up every morning trying to bring about change understanding. So the words are urgency, engage, struggle, and understanding. And I want everybody to understand that this has truly been amazing for me, this 55 uh, minutes or 60 minutes that we've had together to talk about the books. Again, U.S. Civil Rights Trail, a traveler's guide to the people, places, and events that made the movement. That's why I show your book, <laughs> Voices from the Mississippi Hill Country, the Benton County Civil Rights Movement, and I Am a Man, photographs of the Civil Rights Movement, 1960 to 1970. Thank you so much. This is, as my word that people know, is always amazing, phenomenal. Go out and buy the book. Understand the culture. Understand the photographs. Understand the porch stories. And travel throughout the states to learn about history. Hopefully next year we'll be be looking at each other <laughs> and at the at the Capitol in August for the next Mississippi Book Festival. But for today, thank you so much, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Miss Family. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party. <laughs>